I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the epistle of James, the book of James. And we'll begin our study in the book of James tonight. Uh, We'll look just even briefly at just the first verse, uh, because as we start a new book, uh, as we study a new book, I always like to look at the why. I think it's always beneficial to look at why we've chosen to study whatever it is that we're studying. And so tonight, as much as I want to look at the first verse and we will see God's truth in it, I do want to look at reasons why we need to study James as a ministry. Tonight, I want to look at what to expect. I want to look at, as we look at this great epistle, I want to till the soil of our hearts a little bit. I want to whet our appetites for what God might have for us in the book of James. Building number 87 at the Microsoft headquarters in Redmond, Washington, contains the world's quietest room. The world's quietest room. It's made with six layers of concrete, and steel, and the room itself, in relation to the rest of the building, sits on vibration-damping springs. I'm sure the music team would have a lot of fun in this room. Inside the room, there are fiberglass wedges that break up sound waves. The floor, even, is a mesh-like surface uh, made up of sound-absorbing cables woven together. Now, the room measures a world record negative 20.3 decibels. When even a quiet room, like Powell, of course, when you're not there, is something like 10 decibels, positive 10 decibels. This room is negative 20.3. It is in an anechoic chamber. A-N-E-C-H-O-I-C. That is to say, it does not echo at all. The room is literally silent. And that silence is deafening. You see, if you stand in it long enough, you start to hear your own heartbeat. It's like the telltale heart come alive. You start to have a ringing in your ears, uh, When you even move the slightest bit, your bones make a grinding noise to your ears. Eventually, you, if you're in this room long enough, you start to lose your balance because the complete lack of reverberation sabotages your spatial awareness, and so you start to stumble around. Most people can only stand in this room for just a few moments before asking desperately to get out. The relief of stepping back into the real world from an anechoic chamber like this one, after even just a few moments of deafening silence, is sort of an extreme version of popping your ears after an airplane ride, except times a hundred. Some of you have spent the last year and a half 
locked away in your own little anechoic chamber, doom-scrolling TikTok, a, a year that has sabotaged not your spatial awareness, maybe a little bit of that, but your spiritual awareness. Uh, all the privacy in the world in your own room on the second floor of your parents' house didn't do you any good. And it didn't do you any good in what is usually for uh, all of us uh, the most formative years of your life because you interact with so many people normally. And so for you, the book of James will be a wake-up call out of an anechoic chamber of your coldness, your spiritual unawareness, your belief that Belief in God and Zooming a worship service on Sundays is enough to keep your faith alive. James will show you, if this is you, that your faith must be lived out. And lived out in a particular way, according to God's wisdom. Now others of you, instead of an anechoic chamber, you are in an echo chamber of your own growth and maturity in knowledge, whether it's in school or in theology or doctrine. You see, you've forgotten that your ever-increasing intelligence in whatever area it is, uh, that you've forgotten in that pursuit that we have a faith that's supposed to be lived out with and to others. It's a faith that's supposed to be put on display in community with others and in testimony to the world. But instead, you're stuck in the echo chamber of your own pride and your own increasing intelligence and your swelling heart. And so this is the same sort of effect James will have for us. You see, as we step into the book of James, we step back into the real world. James will show us faith is not in theological and theoretical isolation, but faith must be lived out. Faith is seen in real life in the book of James. Faith is at work in the world. And that's why we're calling this study of James a faith lived out. A faith lived out. Because this book is so full of poignant and practical wisdom Appointed instruction and straightforward statements that cut to the heart about how we ought to live as those who follow Jesus. It's a faith lived out. A faith lived out. And so, as we begin our study this quarter in this book of wisdom, the epistle of James, I want to look at three reasons why we need to study James. Three reasons why we need to study James. Reason number one is that James shows us Jesus. James shows us Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greeting. The James we see in chapter 1, verse 1 is James, the brother of Jesus. More accurately, the half-brother of Jesus. You see, Jesus, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of Mary, 
But James, along with Joseph and Judas and Simon and uh, at least two sisters, were born to Mary and Joseph, all younger siblings of our Lord. James lived an incredible life. Uh, We think he's probably the older brother after Jesus, or the oldest brother after Jesus, because his name usually comes first in lists. Uh, This James lived an incredible life. Uh, James, who wrote this epistle, was formed and fashioned by God in a unique way as the brother of Jesus. And so we need to look a little at his life to see how, in this epistle penned in the mid-40s A.D., how he shows us Jesus. This James grew up uh, with his older brother Jesus. For 30 years, James lived with and ate with and shared a room with and played with the very Son of God. And as Jesus began His ministry, John 7 gives us a picture of what James and the other siblings thought of Jesus. Turn to John chapter 7 with me. And flip over to John 7 and we'll see what James and the siblings thought of Jesus. John 7, starting in verse 1, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. and He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So His brothers said to Him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see, James and his brothers uh, tell their older brother Jesus, perhaps doubtingly or maybe mockingly, to go into Jerusalem to the Feast of Booths and display his works, his miracles, to all. Jesus, if you are for real, prove yourself. Perhaps, though, in their doubt, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promise of the Scriptures. The socio-political idea of a Savior for the Jewish people. The one to deliver them all from Roman rule. Maybe Jesus was that person, that figure. Uh, Go, do your works and prove yourself. And win over the crowds, the siblings say. Perhaps a, a dare of sorts even. A hint of hoping that Jesus might refuse or be scared or fail. Well, verse 5 shows us why they said this. It says there, look, for not even His brothers believed in Him. The reason why they say this, whether mockingly or doubtingly or a little of each, is because they did not believe in him. This sort of unbelief seems to be a theme with Jesus' family throughout the Gospels. We get hints of it in Mark even, chapter 3. When the crowds come and uh, he can't even get into the house, his family says, he is out of his mind. Uh, This Jesus. James also would have heard Jesus say, 
like he said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. James hears this, the brother of Jesus. Unless you hate your brother, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, To someone with spiritually deaf ears, ouch. Uh, We know that Jesus himself, though he commanded that of his disciples, he himself bore his own cross and died for the sins of the world. But that was something that James did not believe during Jesus' earthly ministry. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we see that truth encapsulated. uh, That Jesus bore his own cross and died for the sins of the world. Uh, Look at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you of, as of first importance what I also received, Paul says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the truth we believe in the Gospel, that Jesus died and was raised again. Look at verse 5. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The resurrected Jesus appeared to James. You see, we don't know when James believed finally in his brother Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But when James saw Jesus, his brother, who had died on the cross for the sins of the world, and he saw him, and he was alive again, it either sparked or sealed James' faith in the risen King. You see, James would not only believe in Jesus, but he would go on to be as Acts shows us, and early church historians tell us, he would become the leading figure of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, He would shepherd that poor but faithful band of Jewish believers through persecution and turmoil and ostracism for their belief in Jesus the Messiah. James has a few nicknames in church history. Uh, One of them is Old Camel Knees. Because James had knees, they said, like a camel calloused from praying on his knees so much that God would provide for the Jerusalem church. He was also called James the Just by Josephus, the great church historian. James was known for his zeal for righteousness, for God's just Law, So he was James the just, and that's something we'll see in this great epistle. And so James was the shepherd pastor of the Jerusalem church. 
He shows up in Acts several times. And those are instances we'll look at in this series. Uh, He also shows up in Galatians where Paul the Apostle calls him a pillar of the Jerusalem church. And so it's this James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the skeptic turned shepherd who pens this epistle. Uh, James, not the self-proclaimed, self-aggrandizing brother of the risen Messiah, but here, chapter 1, verse 1 in James, turn back there, James, a servant, a doulos, a slave of God. And of who? And of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are only two mentions of Jesus in James. Chapter 1, verse 1, and look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So, there's only two mentions. How is it that James shows us Jesus. So much of the instruction found in the book of James reflects the teaching of Jesus. It reflects the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It parallels even the structure of the Sermon on the Plain found in Luke. And all of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels, uh, much of it is reflected in this great book. And so as James writes in chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, he says. Well, we will hear Jesus teaching. And the second commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, as James writes in chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We will then hear Jesus teaching, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, as James writes in chapter 4, again, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. There is only one lawgiver and judge, He who is able to save you and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We will hear Jesus teaching, judge not that you be not judged. When James writes, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten in chapter 5, we will hear Jesus teaching, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When James writes in chapter 5, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. We will hear Jesus teaching, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
let what you simply say be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. As we study James, we will hear the voice of Jesus. We need to study James because we will benefit so greatly from the perspective of the half-brother of Jesus, our Savior. One who knew Jesus, but did not believe Him. Then, whose life was transformed by that Jesus. It's this James who will help us fill out our perspective on what faith in this Jesus should look like. Uh, We've been hearing about the uh, life and ministry of Jesus in the book of Mark on Sundays, and we'll be back there even this Sunday with our pastor. Uh, But James uh, will give us perspective of someone who saw Jesus live what he taught for his entire life. And so as we explore James, we will see a a faith lived out. The kind of true religion that true saving faith produces. Exemplified in the life of Jesus and told by his brother James. As we explore James, we will constantly find ourselves sitting at the feet of our Savior Jesus. Hearing our Lord teach us through his brother James. The second reason why we need to study James is that James clarifies the relationship between faith and works. James clarifies the relationship between faith and works. James, as chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, writes to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, to Jewish believers who were all over the map, exiled in diaspora as a result of Assyrian and Babylonian rule. These were people whose faith was being severely put to the test, living generally poor, servile existences, lifestyles under the rule of the landowning class with never enough material possessions or social capital to even make it to the merchant class. And so it's in this context to poor Jewish believers scattered all over uh, that James writes, these believers are doubly outcasts in their situation as Jewish people looked down upon in a nationalistic sense And then as followers of Jesus, just as much scorned for their faith in this Messiah who died. And did he really rise again? And James then writes to challenge and encourage these scattered saints. You see, for these believers, the matter of faith at hand was not one of belief. They believed in Jesus. Uh, The matter of faith at hand was the matter of a faith lived out. See, it wasn't a matter of doctrinal error or a need to grow in an area of theology for these believers, but rather how 
doctrine or theology led to living as a Christian. And so James writes, as we'll see in an extremely straightforward, uh, no buts about it kind of way. And he points these early Christians to a way of life that reflects their Savior. He says, you have faith? Well, show me by your works. Do you love God? Uh, Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. Uh, Are you saved? Talk like it. Uh, Do you know Jesus? Well, treat your brother who is poor just like you, just like the brother who has money. Do you trust God? Well, show me. Find joy in trials and resist temptation because you trust God. Look at your future like someone who trusts God. Look at material possessions like someone who trusts the God who gives. Pray like someone who trusts God. Do you have faith? James asks. Show it by how you live. The boldness and apparent brashness of James's theology of faith and works is it's not been without criticism throughout church history. Listen to Martin Luther. Luther says this in a word, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, that is first John. St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know. Even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Wow. That's our Martin Luther. The one we're going to hear about at the conference, Martin Luther. In particular, to be fair, Luther has James 2.24 in mind in particular. Look at that. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Sounds scary, doesn't it? We will see there are perfectly perfectly reasonable and helpful ways to understand this verse. And we'll get there when we get there, trust me. Uh, But this is Martin Luther, our Martin Luther, using 1 Corinthians 3 imagery about building on the foundation that is Christ with either gold or silver or costly stones, wood or hay, or last in the list, straw. James, an epistle of straw to be burned up on that last day. Well, this shows us, obviously with where we're going, that even great men of church history have faults and have 
opinions that we can disagree with. Uh, that's a lesson tonight that I'll give you for free. Um, but we give grace to the great man of God that was Martin Luther, that in his context, what he said was understandable and helpful as he battled for the significance of the grace of God and the grace of God alone in salvation. So we, it can be gracious as we read a quote like that and, and kind of understand the context. Um, for what it's worth, Luther also spoke of Hebrews in this way. And uh, it's probably because he couldn't figure out who wrote the book. And to insert some perspective on a critique like this, it's, to me, at least about as helpful as saying, well, Proverbs, it lacks prophecy or gospel clarity. Uh, Malachi doesn't have enough grace in it. Uh, Leviticus uh, it should have a little more wisdom in it, I think. Well, any book of God's written and inspired word, when examined in a vacuum, is a difficult sell to be as balanced or helpful in all of the doctrines just like the other books. But all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we'll see that to be clearly true of James, even if it doesn't magnify the grace of God like Luther thinks every good epistle should. And despite Luther's critique, we will see that James does not contradict Paul or lack any sort of gospel clarity, to be clear. In fact, we'll see the gospel of God's grace beautifully and plainly in the book of James. And we will see that James actually very helpfully complements, contributes to the overall theology and understanding of faith and works found throughout the New Testament. And it won't always just help us with the theology of it. It'll help us in our own lives. You see, as we live by faith and not by sight, and we reflect on the grace of God and salvation, James will complement and contribute to our theology, our faith lived out, that faith produces works. The theology of faith and works found in James is not unlike Ephesians 2, to name one passage that will help. You know this passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so to be clear, both Paul and James have the same theology of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, but they are addressing in their contexts and to their audiences two sides of the same coin. You see, Paul in Romans and GEPC, Gentiles Eat Pork Chops, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, he's answering the question, how is salvation received? How does it work? What are salvation's inner workings? Whereas James in this epistle is answering the question, how is salvation 
verified? How is salvation confirmed in somebody's life? What is the character of a faith that is truly living? And so for James, one's faith and one's works is not only a sensical or a theological or logical connection between what you believe and your heart and how you live, it is a living, breathing connection. Faith naturally produces works because it is a living faith. Works are a natural overflow of faith. It is the way of righteousness. It's how God designed life in Jesus to be. Chapter 2, verse 17 summarizes James's pithy argument about this. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so we'll see in James a living faith, a faith lived out. And so we need to study James because James will help us to see that to be made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved means to remain alive and be a living, breathing example of faith, a life that fully demonstrates God's amazing grace. This is a faith lived out. Lastly, reason number three that we need to study the book of James is because James gives us a perspective of God's wisdom. James gives us a perspective of God's wisdom. You see, not only does James clarify the relationship between your faith that you hold and that you believe, and then the one that you work out, that you live out James also gives us wisdom. It gives us how to live that faith out. It gives us instruction on how to live that faith out. It shows us areas of life where faith must work. James isn't uh, highly doctrinal or theological at first glance. It, It doesn't spell out the doctrines of grace or Uh, Give us a glorious picture of the gospel, as we've seen. Or it doesn't have a rich theology of the Spirit like Romans does. But in the book of James, there is indeed plenty of theology and doctrine. It's just that it's packed into and hidden in the wisdom and instruction found on its pages. It's theology, doctrine applied. It's much like the book of Proverbs. It is constantly referencing Jesus' teachings and the Old Testament and wisdom literature. And all of that knowledge is then lived out, played out, applied to life. James shows us the very wisdom of the all-wise God. Y'all are smart. You're really good at memorizing things if you got into UCLA. Uh, you're really good at solving problems, ethical or mathematical. Uh, you're good at proofs, probably, or science. Science. Or you think you're good, or you pretend to be good. Pipetting. You guys are awesome. 
clickers. You guys are awesome. You're smart. Or you're like me, you were kind of good at art or languages or balancing debit and credit entries. Y'all are smart. That's why you're here. But you need God's wisdom. I need God's wisdom. Even the oldest person in this room, our beloved staffers, they need God's wisdom. We need God's wisdom and James will give it to us in spades. We need James to show us how to live out our knowledge and live out our love for God. You see, in James, growing in maturity, growing in spiritual maturity means growing in wisdom. It means letting what we claim to have in our minds flow truly through our hearts and to our lives, our actions and our thoughts and our words. Your college years are a critical time in life for pursuing the wisdom of God and cultivating a posture to receive it for the rest of your life. Uh, Believe it or not, you will never be more teachable. You ought to use this year especially, but these college years in general, to cultivate a a posture, a, a receptiveness to God and His wisdom in His Word. Because before you know it, you're going to be old like me and you're not going to like other people telling you what to do. And somehow, even as a Christian, uh, you won't like God telling you what to do even when you need it. And So develop a humility as we study James to receive God's wisdom. Because you're going to face trial and difficulty and situation beyond your finite scope and beyond your mental and emotional capacity. And you'll be glad that we went through the book of James because God shows us truth that transcends time and helps His people live to His glory. And so in James, we'll seek the wisdom of God together that will help you with full faith to face the fiercest of trials and temptations. James cuts to the quick over and over. It's a convicting book. It shows us our weaknesses and our proneness to numb, lifeless faith. It shows us the elephant graveyards in our lives, the ones where we don't like to think about or talk about our weaknesses, Uh, trials, uh, temptation, God's wisdom in regards to how we speak, Uh, how we interact with one another and tend to show favoritism, Uh, how we live in this world and avoid being worldly, Uh, how we handle money, Uh, if and how we pray. And yet in all of this, all of what we will see is our lack of wisdom. God will graciously use James to give us his wisdom in these areas. But just as importantly, don't miss this, James will continually point us to the fact that God is the all-wise and generous God toward those who seek wisdom. 
Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James is often and rightfully called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And James echoes the call for wisdom found in Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs in chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Proverbs 3 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Only in James we see a similar call, the call to consider one's life, one's way of life, to think upon the way then of God's righteousness, and then to not just think about it, but to pursue that path of life, to reject the ways of the sloth or the fool or the materialistic miser, and instead pursue the way of wisdom. James calls it the meekness of wisdom, the humility of wisdom. Wisdom from above. The wisdom of James gives us 59 commands, 59 imperatives in just 108 verses. You do the math. That's a lot of telling us how to live. And when we're done, we'll be grateful for it. It also illustrates that wisdom with picture after picture. Just to name a few, a billowing sea, a withered flower, image of a face in a mirror, a bit in a horse's mouth, the rudder of a ship, a destructive forest fire, a spring of water, a traveling businessman, a picture of corroding metal, Moth-eaten clothes. As we study James, we will have a thumb in the book of Proverbs and an eye on the riches of wisdom found in the other parts of Scripture. And we will see in James God's desire for us to listen, seek, and to answer the call of wisdom and then pursue that way of life, a faith lived out. As we begin our study in the book of James, I would like to challenge you to do three things, just practically. Okay, uh, The first would be to read James. To read James. Your assignment, I thought you were done with class this week, I'm sorry. 
uh, is to read the entire book of James, all 108 verses, uh, by next week. And just read the book. It takes 16 minutes uh, to read the book of James at a normal pace. If you're ambitious, read it once a week. Uh, I've been reading it every day and I've been grateful. I pull something new, several things new every time. So first, read the book of James. Second, uh, talk with others about what you're learning. There's going to be so much that God will show us in this book, this great epistle. Uh, And the best thing you can do is discuss it with uh, others, whether it's in small group or uh, after GOC or throughout the week. Uh, Let's discuss the wisdom of God, that it may find its full fruit in our lives, but in the lives of those we love around us. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, pray. Pray for wisdom. Uh, The posture of this study in the book of James is the one of James himself, old camel knees, on our knees in humble prayer that God might give us his wisdom. And we'll see that thematically in this book over and over. But that ought to be the cry of our hearts as we dive into uh, the book of James. Let's ask God for that help right now. Won't you pray with me? God, thank you for this great epistle. We are so excited to look at its truth. And we are grateful, Lord, that uh, this epistle uh, of straw, God, you have used like gold throughout church history. And now, Lord, as we join that line of faithful saints that have seen the truth in this great book, would you, Lord, we ask humbly that you would instill in us this year the meekness of wisdom. That we would, in some way, by the work of your Spirit, attain the wisdom from above, God, we ask. So that's our prayer, Lord, as a ministry. Uh, Use it, Lord, mightily with this group that each person in this room, Lord, would be uh, more mature in Christ because of this study. And that, Lord, you would use each of us also to help each other grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's to this end that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.